Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we are going to be talking first about a big piece of news this week in the food policy world, the move by six major urban school districts to source chickens that have been raised without antibiotics. The six school districts are working together through a new consortium, the Urban School Food Alliance, and these districts have a huge impact on the world of school nutrition as they collectively feed almost 3 million students a day. Joining me today to talk about this is Deputy Food Services Director of the Los Angeles Unified School District, Laura Benavides, and Mark Eisman, the Director and Senior Attorney of the Food and, Ag- of Food and Agriculture for the National Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. They've both been very involved in shaping this initiative, and I want to thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. So, Laura, I want to start with you and just hear from your perspective uh, a a little brief description of the initiative and what you forecast as its impact. Well, we're looking at as working through with LA Unified and the Alliance of what what we can continuously do to impact policy and the meals that we serve to our students. And chicken is one of the most popular items that we serve to students. And the impact for us moving forward with this, with this working through our procurement process is to be able to provide better, healthy meals to our students. And how did you come to make this one of your important procurement objectives? In other words, the identification of looking for antibiotic-free meat as one of your initial procurement objectives as a group. Well, again, as you know, we we talked about it as as a group. As you know, how can we I guess best impact our our uh, our, our our student meals? And we really did focus on one of the items that we're currently serving. You know, it is the most popular. So we're looking at as that item as a opportunity to, and we knew that it, it was an, just an opportunity to be able to Im- improve the, the meals that we're serving to our students. So, Mark, can you describe NRDC's role in assisting the alliance with this and, from your perspective, what the significance is of antibiotic-free meat for kids? Well, as some of your listeners know, NRDC is a leading environmental and public health group that, for the last four decades, has worked on agriculture issues and, um, in recent years, much more on food issues as it it relates to your plate. and we saw an incredible opportunity when we started meeting initially with New York City school officials, which serve 860,000 meals a day, which is second only to the Department of Defense. It's an amazing statistic. And L.A. is just behind New York. So we saw the power of the purse here. We've seen it in the past when government 
has made the decision to buy recycled paper or buy green building products, it can really transform the national market. So we saw uh, an opportunity with their interest in buying antibiotic chicken um, dovetailed nicely with an NRDC campaign to raise awareness of this growing public health crisis, which the Centers for Disease Control has called one of the, the biggest health problems facing the country. Can you give any sense of how, I, I mean, I think people are familiar with this issue that they're, they may have their eyes out for meat that's been raised without antibiotic or chicken in this case, but can you give a sense of what the actual market looks like and, and how this can play a role in shifting it? I mean, how, how widely available is antibiotic-free meat and what might this do for suppliers in terms of making that change? Well, our understanding is that from both conversations that NRDC has had and that the schools themselves have had with chicken producers is that this product uh, is available, and um, the goal is by sending this market signal, by saying we're going to buy this amount of chicken together, that will allow those producers to ramp up. Um, Right now, um, production probably is not at the levels to accommodate everyone if everyone was asking if it was going to be starting tomorrow. But what's nice about this program is that it's going to be rolled in as contracts in each of the six cities expire, and they rebid and essentially asking producers uh, to bid for their chicken contracts. And um, everything that we've heard, the industry will be able to uh, meet the standard and, and, and provide that amount of chicken. Um, Laura, can you share for our listeners what it's been like to work with the Urban School Food Alliance and what things that you've seen that you all are facing collectively in terms of the challenges of meeting those goals that you talked about in the school food environment? Well, it's been a great opportunity with Los Angeles to work with the Urban School Food Alliance and knowing that we're representing, just like you had stated, almost almost 3 million students that we're feeding every single day. A lot of the different initiatives they're working on is to always, first and foremost, to always better improve the quality of the meals that we're serving, but also to improve the uh, the sustainability and the environment of the, of the things that we offer to our students. A couple of the items that we're looking at as moving forward is to offer a compostable plate and utensils for our students that we were collectively working together to get onto our as our one of our next steps. And I know that this dovetails for LA. And I'm sure a number of the districts, but for you in LA in particular, with with a lot of recent work and continuing work on improvement of your school food, is there uh, are there particular things that you can highlight to explain the kind of shifts that you've made and continue to make there in terms of both your policies and what you're actually serving? Oh, absolutely! Just actually a couple of days ago, our school board unanimously passed. Um, our good food procurement for 2014, which actually is a stronger language on our procurement processes from our good food procurement that we passed in 2012, which really also highlights in reference to us procuring um, items, uh, chicken products that are antibiotic-free, but also to be able to strengthen our processes with procurement of continuing to to buy locally to continually to look at the nutrition and uh, and offerings for our students, and also including animal welfare and a better and a stronger workforce for our of the companies that we're working with. And as part of the work of the alliance, I mean, I think hearing that it's 
it's the same kind of goals that people shopping at Whole Foods think of when they're thinking about what Whole Foods is doing to bring better food to the plate. I mean, how how have you, in your career and, and through this work with the Alliance, thought about the reputation of school food and getting the message out about these efforts? And do you see the Alliance as something that helps you to do that? Oh, absolutely, because, again, we're representing so many students nationwide. But for us, it's not necessarily, and I know, and, think, um, and not necessarily thinking about healthy food is a privilege. It is a standard, and we feel our student. it's very important for all of our students, no matter from where they come from, that they deserve the best of what they, we get to offer them every single day. And the actual uh, specification in particular that, that you've announced here, um, one of the things that I noticed about it is that it calls for food that has never been chicken that has never been fed antibiotics or treated with antibiotics. And that is a significant uh, point. So, Mark, perhaps you can take us through and explain the difference between chicken that has been treated at therapeutic levels and chicken that has not been treated at all with antibiotics and how the decision was made here to push for chicken that has never been treated with antibiotics. Yeah, well, what the Alliance is saying is uh, it wants to have chicken that has been raised without antibiotics. And for the listeners that uh, may not know all these details, and it's complicated, 80% of the antibiotics in this country are not used in hospitals and doctor's offices, but used to raise animals. And as a result of that, um, anti-infection-resistant bacteria, thank you, um, is spreading. And as a result, when you really need the antibiotics, they often don't work. So the alliance um, is saying that's what we would like. And it is also saying if a company cannot do no antibiotics ever, then they have to submit a written plan uh, explaining when the supplier will meet, be able to meet that no antibiotics ever. And in the meantime, they need to meet a standard that only allows the use of antibiotics when the chickens are sick. Um, what's happening now, you think of antibiotics as something you give humans or animals when they're sick. What's happening instead on a lot of these factory farms and they've crowded, the conditions are so crowded and unsanitary that they're giving the antibiotics before they get sick or to keep them in crowded conditions. And so if the antibiotics are used... Um, only when they're sick, that's an interim standard that NRDC helped to put together with our partners, School Food Focus and the Pew Charitable Trust. And, um, but again, the Alliance is asking ultimately that they want to move to no antibiotics ever. And how will this actually uh, roll out? So you, you talked about that this is going to be based on as different contracts expire for the different districts. Is there a district that's going first in terms of putting out um, putting out a procurement request for this kind of chicken, and how will at what point will you know if you're you have successful respondents and if this initiative has uh, has come to fruition? Laura, maybe you can speak to that. Sure. Um, well, Ally Unified will will be the first up. We are hope we are going to be doing our procurement processes starting in February, and showing all you know. Knowing that the and we are going to be working with our procurement offices to ensure the company that that receives the the bid will be meeting the standards that we have set forward. And have you had any responses from the vendors that you typically work with? Uh, not responding to your bid, obviously, but 
responses in terms of the overall direction that you're moving in? Uh, not directly from LA. We, we in LA Unified has not received any response directly. Um, and I wanted to also ask about the second thing that you mentioned, the, the move for compostable trays. Is that something, what's the timeline for that, and how are you expecting that to, to roll out as well? It's a, a comp- I apologize if I said tray. It was a compostable plate, which is a, a round no, plate you, that we... You, that was probably me, but <laughs> no, and it's not I'm a picturing problem. in New York City, we, I'm used to seeing trays. Well, which is one of the reasons why we're wanting to be moving to a plate, because we want our children to have that experience of what they eat at home. Generally, we don't, I've, I've, and in my home, we don't eat on a, on a rectangle plate. We eat on a, a round plate. So it's something that we want our children to learn from that experience. We're finishing up working through with New York Public Schools about the, um, the finish up the compostable plate. A bit and getting, we wanted to get that into our schools as soon as possible as well. And, so, you know, I could just add, can I just add on that, Kim? Yeah. That, um, I mean, getting rid of 270 million styrofoam plates a year in these six cities uh, is great. I know LA has moved ahead on that front, so that's one benefit alone. Just jettisoning the styrofoam. So also, by uh, introducing compostable plates, we're able to address the food waste problem where. The food, extra food that's there that can't be reduced, um, it can be thrown in with the with the plate, and then that can be composted and put back on our farms, and which is another uh, benefit of this program. Absolutely, I'm actually a parent of uh, New York City school children, and our school is part of one of the New York City schools that is composting at lunch. And I have seen the heroic efforts to separate, um, which are largely successful, but it will be it will be excellent to for kids to be more easily able to sort their compostable waste. Uh, So I'm looking forward to seeing that come to fruition myself. Um, So, Laura, you know, one thing I I read about this announcement in the L.A. Times, and you talked about this a little bit on your call today, but you said having antibiotic-free chicken is is not a privilege to write, and you talked about that in general with your food. I mean, can you just expand upon where that comes from and how it ties into your work in general uh, in school food? Sure, of course. Well, in here in Los Angeles, we have over 80% of our children that qualify for a free or reduced-price meal. Already some of the things that, you know, in, in reference to, this, um, to, in, in reference to this, this particular procurement, it's an opportunity to share with our families that we, we want to make a difference in their students' lives. We want to, we, by doing, we are challenging all of our suppliers to know that we, we, what we are serving our kids is going to be, we want it to be the best. And it, whether it's antibiotic-free chicken or if it's, um, you know, white milk, only a non-fat-free milk, it's something that we want to make sure that we are sharing with our, our parents that we, we take seriously the health of their students. And we have the opportunity by that in, in Los Angeles and with the Urban School Food Alliance because, again, we represent you know, serving thir- 3 million students a day. Well, I think uh, that's a great note to in- end on. I want to thank you both for, first, your work on this incredible initiative and step forward, um, but also for joining us here today to talk about that. This, it's Mark Eisman of NRDC and Laura Benavides of the Los Angeles Unified School District. Thanks again. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back with the second segment of the show. Thanks, Thank Kim. you. You are listening to The Hustle by Alan Wilkes.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back uh, on Eating Matters here on Heritage Radio Network, and I am now joined by Dennis Simic, who is the national, who is National Geographic Executive Editor for the Environment. Dennis is here with me today to talk about the year in food as we come to the close of 2014. He conceived of the Future of Food series that uh, Nat Geo has been featuring this year, and he has spearheaded the eight, month, the eight months of coverage focusing on how to feed our growing planet. Dennis, I want to welcome you to Eating Matters and to Heritage Radio Network. How are you, Kim? Thanks for having me today. Great to have you joining us. So I first wanted to just hear from you for people who aren't familiar. I feel like people who are concerned about food and interested in food issues will definitely have seen or encountered some of the coverage that National Geographic has been doing this year. But if you can just give some background on what the work has been and what the series will look like, that would be great. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, it was really conceived as a sequel and a conversation with our with our readers and our members about a series of large uh, global sustainability issues. And you know, really, we started about a decade ago looking at climate change, and and uh, we did a special issue on global freshwater in 2010, and and a f- series on population across 2011. And I was saying, well, but these are all connected, and given that what we're seeing with the the climate at all, that maybe the next step in this conversation is really what's for, essentially, what's for lunch, what's for dinner. And so that began conversations where we started thinking about, well, how could we do this in a way that uh, didn't overwhelm readers? So we broke it out into about eight different stories that started in May and started asking questions. How are we going to, uh, how are, are we going to deal with the issue of feeding 9 billion? And then we broke it out into asking that question and we brought in uh, John Foley from the University of Minnesota who was there at that time who'd written a paper in Nature about how to sort of break this challenge out into several sections. And then we looked at aquaculture. We looked at this idea of... um, land grabs or agricultural development in Africa. We looked at uh, hunger in America. Uh, We looked at the history and the evolution of diet. We were trying to sort of frame something so that it wasn't just just about the issues, but, you know, with agriculture, culture is the second half of the word, so we were trying to get at cultural dimensions. We looked at the evolution of diet and what we can learn from that for today. We actually did look at uh, the role of uh, improved genetics and biotechnology in, in crops and what, what, uh, what benefits will accrue to the crops and the farmers who grow them. Uh, we looked at the role of, of meat in our diets, and then a piece that came out in the December uh, issue right. was on the joy of food. Yeah, I was going to say, when you talk about the, the culture piece in agriculture, that brings us right to today and your current issue um, with that great that great cover line, the joy of food, which is, right. is something you just can't separate from these other pieces that have to do with the challenges and the scientific issues around moving forward. But I want to ask you, after having this year of being so steeped in these issues, you know, do you have some major impressions of 2014 in terms of some of the things that have happened in the world, in the world of food policy? Uh, well, hmm, food policy, I have to admit to you that, you know, I don't think that our audience is really one that's focused on the idea of food policy. I think our major goal really was uh, as one who has been involved in this for a long time, is that food and where it comes from just doesn't register in the public mind. And trying to just get a connection between uh, uh, people in society and where food comes from and what it takes to make it happen and the uh, the magnitude of the enterprise and the impacts of it, I think it's like essentially in one sense that's the underpinning of what you need if you're looking to change policy. And so we're really in this role of explanatory education, trying to reconnect uh, essentially a a society back to the very basic thing that keeps them going. And that until, you know, until, say, uh, World War II or so, there were a lot of people who were directly connected to agriculture, whether they grew up on a farm or, or they knew somebody who grew up on a farm. And so the last 60 years, we've seen in a huge urban-suburban migration and a disconnection from those very basic things that, that we eat. And so in one sense, we were just trying to re- make a reconnection. 
Yeah, and that visibility piece, or you know, as it's often referred to, the invisibility of food and food production, does really affect how we talk about policy and think about policy because some of these issues are seem so abstract and removed from the ability to go to the grocery store and see food looking highly available and even food waste being something that, you know, I think until quite recently, I would say even in the last year or 18 months, has just not been at the forefront of a lot of people's thinking. And that's an issue actually that I know that uh, you've looked at and talked, at, talked about as part right. of this series you know, what What has been some of the responses you've gotten to your coverage of food waste? And Well, the, the certainly, certainly I think that what we're trying to do, remember that there, there are two kinds of food waste, and there's the food waste that happens in this country when we're seeing what is it, uh, nearly half of the food that we have available we pitch. Uh, but there's another kind when we're also trying to talk about the global challenge and that's it also it's food loss and we we're trying to get that idea too and we will be getting it that actually next year in a in a story in in uh uh the magazine but i think that there there this whole idea of of waste when you start thinking about this desire that the only fruits and vegetables that we will accept are the perfect ones yet there are ones that are perfectly ugly, but they're perfectly uh, wonderful as far as taste and edibility, or this whole issue of the uh, eat by expire date thing. Is that really true? And getting people to rethink that and to think about that, because it's like the idea that like, oh, well, unless I eat it by this date, then I better pitch it. I'm sorry, I have yogurt in my refrigerator that's been out of date for more than a month, and I'll eat it, and I'm talking to you today. (laughs) Right. Right. I grew up in a household where that that philosophy was very much embraced, for better or worse, to to ignore yeah, right. the expiration dates. But it's not that common. Um, right. And you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the topic of climate change and food and the interrelationship right. between them. I, to me, I think that has been something that's really come to the fore in the past year. And with the uh, IPCC report making that link, and the People's Climate March here in New York City, where food groups had such a significant presence, that there's really been a turning point in understanding the, those connections. Uh, you know, what what did your coverage? Uh, uh, well, I would say that, and... that it may be with part of the society, but w- one thing I noticed, and I w- have been in, I have been in uh, involved in speaking to a variety of groups who are who are involved in agriculture and it may be that some some parts of our culture are uh, ha- uh, are accepting of the climate science but I did not necessarily see that actually in agriculture that there was that there there's there still remains significant skepticism in agriculture about the human role in changing the climate. There's an awareness that the weather's changing, you know, seeing warmer winters, longer growing seasons, but this idea that, that somehow th- that humans are affecting it, I'm just, I'm just saying that there is still a case that has to be closed if we're trying to, you know, get universal acceptance of this idea in the country. I mean, all you have to do is look at the division in, in our policymaking bodies. And I think do that you it's think- a... In the conversations that you've had, do you think that there is a need to have people accept that humans are have a causal role or that a focus on resiliency or adaption to weather changes, as you say, that some have acknowledged, um, can also that's, build a bridge towards the necessary action steps? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a more uh, that's a more productive approach. And for example, um, uh, you can make the argument about human cause, or you can talk about risk management, and you can talk about uh, reducing vulnerability. And I, for example, I heard one farmer who was at a panel uh, at a major conference talking about how he has to he has to uh, budget now for extreme weather. In the past, he would he would um, uh, not have to uh, take into account the need to replant because of heavy rain, but now he does. So there is an awareness that we're dealing with it. So then it really does, as you say, then it becomes, uh, can we become more resilient by changing our cropping patterns? Can we become more resilient by by looking at how we maintain land cover? Uh, how, 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 how are we, uh, you know, going about using the landscapes that, that we have? And do you think that those steps would ultimately also have a mitigation effect on contributions to climate change or agriculture's contributions to climate change? Well, so we do know that there's a heavy reliance on fossil fuels in agriculture. You know, face it, the trucks, the tractors, uh, uh, the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that is actually, if you listen to like Vaclav Smil, the Canadian scientist who studied this, you know, uh, 40 uh, upwards of 40 percent of the population of the planet is alive today because of synthetic nitrogen uh, fertilizer. So that's, you know, obviously the the fossil fuels are heavily involved in it. But I think in 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 a larger picture, there's a bigger there's a bigger issue that's affecting not just agriculture, but all of us, and it, and it comes back to our our larger societal reliance on coal, oil, and gas. And if you, we did a piece, a big piece in April, it wasn't connected to the food series, partly because, you know, these are all connected issues anyway, but it was on coal. And, and as Dan Kamen, I heard Dan Kamen from Berkeley give a talk at uh, the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science a couple of years ago, that since the year 2000, our our re- the increase in our reliance on coal as a power source, as, as a basic power source, has increased as much as our increase in reliance on all other energy sources combined, including uh, renewables. And so until we can come to terms with how we're going to power the, how we're going to generate electricity, how are we going to turn wheels, agriculture itself is, is going to be affected just like the rest of us. So you wrote a piece uh, earlier this year about the role of agricultural research in right. um, taking some of these steps forward, and I wonder if you have reflections based on that research about um, about the role of research in addressing some of these challenges related to climate change and resiliency. Uh, well, I think that we need to keep in mind that uh, what, what I... Uh, I think a point that I was trying to make was that, you know, there's private agricultural research and there's public. And the public agricultural research, for example, open source, uh, publicly funded uh, uh, research is is the kind of crop research that, say, uh, Norman Borlaug and the crop researchers did when they came up with the hybrid crops uh, uh, 50 years ago and so it's there's a kind of research that we're we are de- we are in still in need of as a as a society when we're dealing with how are we going to create safe 
adaptive farming systems to a climate-changed world. Those aren't necessarily the kinds of research investments that are going to work well with a corporation's bottom line. Yet, for the greater good, for the commons, they're absolutely necessary because we're seeing changes in weather patterns and, and, and changes in temperature, changes in precipitation, and not to mention the need for long-term commitment to research in crop varieties, because we can we can look forward and see that oh well we're going to be living in a world of uh, warmer temperatures overall, change precipitation patterns, and we can and it's just not possible to turn around new crop varieties overnight to that can be can respond to the changed growing seasons. And those aren't necessarily also the kinds of, that's not necessarily the kind of research that, once again, is going to be what makes a lot of money for a corporation. But at the same time, it's absolutely the kinds of things that can help build margins against downside risk in farming systems. So I have to ask you, listening to you talk about all this, is there is there anything uh, from your work over the past year on this series and now mm-hmm. continuing, because I, I understand that National Geographic is going to continue, uh-huh. that has, makes you optimistic going forward as we look to 2015, um, going forward on, on how we can work together and make some of these needed changes around our food system. Uh, well, one thing I would say is that I, you know, part of part of this I think is a generational challenge, and that yes, we can make changes, but it's also I think what perhaps one of the most important things that we can do is that we can educate young people about this, because in time they they filter up through the system and they they then become the researchers and the policy makers and the farmers and the people who are going to change the system and i and it's i think when one looks at the when one looks at the policy making system that exists currently it's 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 hard there's an awareness of these kinds of things but also there there isn't the money that's coming so so Part of this is not only a near-term challenge, but it's also a longer-term challenge. I have two kids in college now, and I think that it's those trying to connect young people who are now trying to find their way in the world is just as important as anything that we might be doing in in the near-term policy range. And the last question for you after working on the series, has it impacted at all your own shopping and eating? Oh, well, gee whiz, having worked on the series, you need to understand that I grew up on a farm in Oregon, and I studied agriculture in college and undergraduate and graduate, and I've been acutely aware of all this. I mean, you know, it's like absolutely, you know, it's uh, eating meat, be careful. There's only so much that's good for you, and that to try to buy local as much as you can to help farmers who are are near you, and and to to, uh, don't waste food. Believe me, that's like one of the mantras in my house. So it's not like it's something that started and stopped with the series. In fact, I would say that much of all this actually informed what I was trying to do with the series. I've uh, having grown up on a farm in the Willamette Valley of Oregon and being connected to the land, that's actually was as much the impetus for wanting to do this as having having Almost done it. going in the other direction. So you don't have to be crying in the wind when you're telling people not to waste food. Or, no, no. Or <laughs> no. Coming over to your house or, or otherwise <laughs> eating at your table. You I'll just give just them hand, them hand them the latest copy of 
National That's Geographic. right. Here, as part of your dinner, as part of your dinner, I'll give you a nice bound copy of this. All right. Right. Thanks. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining. That's Dennis Dimick of National thank Geographic, you. and they're continuing on with the future food series. We're glad to have you with us on Eating Matters today, and that will bring us to the close of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank all of our guests, and also a big thanks to my husband, Tim Archer, for our amazingly good show music. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes of Stitcher. I'm your host, Kim Kessler, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.